Let's pray as we come to God's word. Now, Father, we thank you for the great gift uh, that we've just heard about in the Bible reading and in the kids' talk. Uh, We confess at the outset we uh, may be those who haven't received it very well. Uh, None of us have received it at all perfectly. And so we ask this morning that your spirit would open our eyes to that, uh, humble our hearts, and ready us to receive you in a more worthy way. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, occasionally you see something appalling set alongside something inspiring. The beautiful alongside the ugly. The before alongside the after. Sometimes that's by design, so you have the black velvet behind the brilliant diamond. Other times, more by just circumstances as they arise, like the two news stories last summer where we, on the one hand, would listen to a news article about looters going into evacuated homes in order to take what they could, and the next story being the firefighter who gives his life for his neighbours. In Mark 14, 1 to 11, it's those who don't want God the Son on the one hand, set beside those who really do, those trying to kill Jesus alongside those offering their all to him. Stark contrasts. This is both by circumstance and by artistic design of Mark, the author of Mark's gospel, who often sandwiches material. He sandwiches the love between the hatred to elucidate each. It's confronting and it's challenging, and I invite you, as my prayer indicated, whether a regular or a visitor, to welcome what you hear, to not seek to escape a challenge from God today if he exposes areas of our lives that need attention. He is, after all, a kind surgeon, which can sometimes bring pain. He's a surgeon for our souls, but the black and white x-rays of Scripture are not all pretty. God diagnoses real issues in order that we call upon him, the one who will address them for us so kindly. So let's approach God's helpful diagnostic question really honestly and humbly today. And the question I want to raise this morning is this. What does Jesus mean to you this Christmas? What does Jesus mean to you this Christmas? Is he a three, a five, a nine out of ten? Not sure, or perhaps, can you repeat the question, David? Sure. What does Jesus mean for you this Christmas? We'll see there's two extreme options this morning. And so we can finish on a high on Christmas Day. Let's begin with the ugly low. We'll see the ugliness of treating Jesus as a threat. And secondly, we'll see the beauty of treating Jesus for who he is. So first, look, look with me at verses 1 to 2 there on your outline. Now the Passover and the festival of un- unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the, fast- uh, the, the festival, they said, or the people may riot. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is heading to the cross. It's Wednesday today. Tomorrow's Thursday, the day of the Last Supper. And he is readying himself with full awareness for Friday, the day on which he will pay the ransom for sin. Baby Jesus, the one we're celebrating today, was born for this very noble purpose. For the Jewish leaders to openly murder this Messiah figure would have been a really bad move. 
verse 2, we read there, it would have been very public. Jerusalem was swelling with people at the time. The Romans ordered extra guards in to try to keep the peace and avoid an uprising. Their fears were well-grounded, even if sad. We read in verse 10 that the dark secret scheming gets worse in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, no less, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Little did they know with the evil in their hearts that they're actually achieving the very purpose Jesus knows is ahead of him and the purpose that comes from God. And so recorded here into human history is the scheming to execute, to murder God the Son. We see angels singing at his birth. I wonder what they're doing now. It's the darkest dark because of who the victim is. Our creator, God himself, enters the world to speak to us, heal us, love us, and we put the Lord of life to death. Really? And what disturbs me here is to reflect that their disregard for Jesus may not be far removed from us as I'd like, as we'd like. Don't we also devalue, dishonour, disregard Jesus, annihilate his intrusive presence, we may even say? Sure, we don't maliciously kill him. But if we're honest and self-aware, there are ways we can politely yet pretty firmly keep Jesus sidelined into irrelevance. Well, does God bring everything, anything I wonder to your conscience as I say these things? Not for the sake of stirring up guilt, but for a kind diagnosis from the God who sent his son. The ugliness of dishonouring Jesus is seen for what it is here. It's at the very least undeserved. No one denies that. But it also leaves one most vulnerable, culpable, from our pure, just judge's perspective. Well, there's the ugly picture, the one I want to start with. <clears throat> But let's look at, take a look at the contrast, the beauty of Jesus recognised, the beauty of treating Jesus for who he is. Verses 3 to 9. So if we read from verse 3, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. It's from an Indian root. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. A few things to appreciate here. Mark records that Simon the leper is hosting this gathering, meaning he's no longer leprous. Someone, I take it, has healed a disease that was, at the time, incurable. And that strong and kind someone is now in the house. From John 12, it seems that this Simon is probably the father of Lazarus, whom Jesus brought back to life. And this Simon is probably the father of Mary and Martha. Mary being the one now anointing Jesus' head, according to John. But unlike Judas, the insider, one of the twelve, this woman is not named here in Mark, I think, to emphasise the devotion of an unnamed outsider, whoever she is. Her actions declare what Jesus means to her and what he can mean to you as well. Judas sells Jesus out for money, this woman is completely sold out for Jesus. 
She doesn't pour out some perfume. She, verse 3, breaks the jar. Probably a family heirloom being so valuable. Sometimes I watch crash scenes in movies. I watch a Ferrari or a new Lamborghini in a mighty crash, ending with a big ball of flames, and I think, special effects, animation... Yes, it was entertaining, but please tell me they didn't actually waste that incredible car for that few moments of viewing pleasure. Or the old movies, perhaps, where I take it animals were seriously hurt in the filming. What's a moment worth? Not the whole jar. Seriously? This devoted woman isn't thinking about saving. She's thinking about Jesus. If she is Mary, she's received her dear brother Lazarus back from death. And she's received her dear dad, Simon, back from the leper colony. A Christian is someone blessed to know whom to thank for God's blessings. Blessed to be able to give the giver of life's gifts. Thanks. We're watching Alone at the moment on SBS. It's a TV show where people go into the wild and they live in complete isolation. One thing they really miss is the privilege, the the joy that comes with sharing an experience with someone else. They just crave another human to, to speak to. Christians have the source of the gift to give thanks for. And one reason I feel sorry for a world unaware of whom to thank is that thankfulness unexpressed is only half enjoyed. What a friend we have in Jesus. We can name him. And we can name his goodness to us. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. I wonder what you make of her actions here. It's a bit of a litmus test, perhaps, an acid test. How similar would you say she is to you? Can you share her reasoning or understand it? For what smelt so beautiful to some smelt of waste to others. In verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly, literally flared their nostrils in anger. And try that when you get home. The woman and these men are travelling in opposite directions when it comes to the critical life question of what Jesus is worth. Together they deliver a humiliating, I take it pretty easy rebuke of a woman whose love for Jesus overflows. It breaks out like her expensive perfume. It's possible a man would have received a similar rebuke, but the rabbinic literature outside the Bible denigrates women in ways Jesus never did but in ways that make this treatment of her unsurprising at the same time. And so while our world gets confused and angry about the good and enjoyable differences between genders, about male and female, some wanting to conflate men with toxicity, others still afraid of the rise of women, Jesus loves people. Male and female, he created these awesome creatures and loves them to death. Christians can love each other, seeing through the world's rivalry. Many years ago, I heard a church elder harshly rebuke a woman who had done no wrong and with reference to her being a woman in the rebuke, which was completely irrelevant. 
I was so shocked by it, I was lost for words as the three of us stood there. And I've regretted many times since my lack of response on that day. Jesus won't stand silently by. He speaks up, verse 7, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? Dorothy Sayers writes about Jesus' relationship with women through the Gospels, and I quote. It's a long quote, but it's, it's, it's a powerful one. Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the women God help us or the ladies God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. Infinitely more brave and noble than me, Jesus addresses their serious rebuke by seriously honouring this woman. Not because she's a woman but because her actions were truly beautiful and, I take it, deeply appreciated. His disciples will soon betray him and leave him utterly alone when a friend, any friend, would spare him the extra pain, not only of being flogged and crucified, but the additional pain of being abandoned by his closest friends. So I take it her actions were not only beautiful but truly appreciated. He's a human after all. And when you feel sad and afraid and aware of your burdens, to have a friend, to have a kind gesture, to have a thoughtful and lavish gift, to have someone express appreciation while you empty yourself to death, to have this expensive perfume on an appreciative body before it becomes a corpse, well, well, it's beautiful. And in his kindness, Jesus will erect a memorial to the woman of this act, more enduring than the marble and brass countless memorials that have come and gone ever since. He will immortalise her love for, for him, an extravagant token gratitude to the one who truly deserves it. Her response will inspire people in Dremoyne in 2021, December 25, and we'll hear about her act that day. Leave her alone, says Jesus in verse 6. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. While the disciples refused to believe Jesus would really die, this woman not only took Jesus at his word, but actually acted boldly upon it in her own way by doing, verse 8, what she could. She did what she could. Her life was her chance to show the Lord that she loves him. Just as your life is your chance to show the Lord you love him. 
Verse 9, we read, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, we shouldn't turn this unthinkingly into a moral lesson. Sacrifice for God and he will accept you. No. The good news is much better than that. Because because God loves you and gives himself to you, you're free to be filled to overflowing like this woman. Her testimony actually is more about Jesus than about herself. She helps us to see and feel and smell his worth, to be shocked with the onlookers, and so memorably and hopefully this morning taught by it. The well-known saying is a good one, so long as we let the first line dominate. God's gift to you is life. What you do with it is your gift to God. God's gift to you is life. There's the good news. What you do with it is your gift to God. Our vision for Jesus becomes our vocation. And so, yes, we work, rest and play, but the person and priorities of Jesus inspire us as a church community as home groups, as households, as individuals. And so I wonder, with you, as I think about my own life, what gets in the way of this? For me, it seems life gets in the way of this somehow. Unless I'm deliberately and regularly drawing near to Jesus, daily nourishing myself with spiritual food, calibrating my senses and my vision, well, circumstances naturally win the day. What comes at me at life? what I'm getting excited or worried about, the noise of the news, corrupted self-talk. But Jesus will be seen by faith and faith will be fed with spiritual food. I know I need God's word in my mind and heart, lest I forget Jesus. Lest I inevitably slide towards the darkness in the Bible passage here, where I develop impure motives in life, concern about self-promotion, Allowing poor ends to justify means. Withholding, scheming, plotting, contrary to the pure will of God. The evil we see in this passage is crouching at our doors as well. Not as a hypothetical danger, but as a real foe with which we must wrestle lest we succumb to Christless living. Who is Jesus to you this Christmas? What will Jesus mean to you in the new year? One to be resisted or one to be loved? What's your jar of perfume, I wonder? And what's stopping you from offering it to him? Many of us here in this church, many of you, I, I know you offer to Christ much of your lives. Many of you are involved in kids' church, in scripture teaching, seeking to raise your kids faithfully, calling lonely people, being a friend to those who need friends, preparing the next Bible study, attending church gatherings, preferring the needs of Christ's people and your neighbours over yourselves. A wasted life? Don't you believe it? That, in Jesus' eyes, is a beautiful life. Be assured the Lord who saw and enjoyed her love on that day is the Lord who still sees and still knows and still feels and still calls beautiful the devotion of his servants. And so the question I raised at the beginning was, what does Jesus mean to you this Christmas? May you be challenged by this wise, nameless woman who knew Jesus, loved her so much that she couldn't help but love him back.
May you have a great Christmas knowing that God's gift to you is life. God's gift to you is life. And so what you do with it is your gift to God. We're now going to respond in song. Thanks.